And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. My dear faithful, the words of the gospel today, he was subject to them, introduce the very idea of this feast of the Holy Family. But it's a good idea for us to consider three mysterious things about this time. The third one being the Holy Family itself, but there are other mysteries too. For example, sometimes people ask, why is the Feast of the Epiphany, which we just celebrated yesterday, and whose octave we are celebrating now, why is the Feast of the Epiphany a greater feast in the eyes of the Church than the Feast of Christmas or the Nativity of our Lord? <coughs> it seems that in our popular devotion, the Feast of the Nativity far, far outshines the Feast of the Epiphany, but not in the mind of the Church. The Feast of the Nativity of our Lord is the third greatest feast in the church year, and the feast, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon, the feast of the Epiphany is the third greatest feast of the church year, and the feast of the Nativity, our Lord's birth, is actually the fourth greatest feast. Well, it helps us to remember some very basic facts. First of all, our Lord did not come into the world on Christmas Day. He was born into the world on Christmas Day. But the Incarnation actually took place nine months before on the Feast of the Annunciation, March 25th. That is when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. That is when Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. And the word was made flesh on March 25th when we celebrate the Feast of the Annunciation. <clears throat> so our Lord came into the world God became man in the womb of our Blessed Mother, known only to her. He came into the world at the Annunciation. And then nine months later, we celebrate his birth. And that is when our Lord appeared. That is when he appeared to the world. And that secret that had been kept so closely and lovingly by Mary and had been shared by heaven with St. Joseph, that secret now became known through the singing of the angels, of the shepherds. And so at the Nativity our Lord appeared, but at the Epiphany we say from the Gospel that our Lord manifested himself. That's the third development that our Lord manifested himself to the world on the Feast of the Epiphany. That's what the Gospel says. That's what Epiphany means. And our Lord manifested himself actually in an ongoing fashion that is three different celebrations. At the Epiphany with the arrival of the kings, at the baptism that he would later receive from John the Baptist at the beginning of our Lord's public life when the heavens opened and the Holy Ghost came down upon him visibly in the form of a dove, and the voice of God the Father thundered from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This was the second epiphany, noted as an epiphany in the gospel. And there is yet a third, and the third happened just a, some weeks later when at the wedding feast of Cana, our Lord transformed the dirty water of washing into the fine wine for the wedding feast. And then again, the gospel says, our Lord manifested 
himself and his disciples believed in him. But in each of these occasions, in each of these epiphanies, designated as such explicitly in the Gospels, our Lord manifested his glory. So he came to earth at the Annunciation. He appeared at the Nativity. He manifested his glory, showed his identity on these three occasions. And these three epiphanies are the focus of the rest of the Christmas season. And that is why the Feast of the Epiphany actually has a greater rank. Because on that feast day, our Lord manifested his glory, manifested his identity, showed that the Savior had come. And he was a Savior not only for the offspring of Abraham, Jews, but for all of us, for all mankind. The Son of God made man to seek and to save what was lost. And these roles of our Lord, his identity, are attested to by the gifts that the Magi brought. Did they understand the significance of the gifts that they brought him? Not necessarily, but they brought those gifts as tokens or as signs of who he really was. That is to say, he came as man, mortal, to die for us in the incense, the frank, the, the myrrh. The myrrh represents that, his mortality. And the gold, his royalty from King David, as a descendant according to the flesh of David through Mary, but also as God because of the incense, truly an offering to a God, true God. And so, again, we find in the Epiphany something very, very special, and why the Church honors our Lord in particular on this feast day. But we also have another question in the feast day today as well, and that is the question of what takes place in the gospel. People do express their surprise that our Lord would do this to his mother Mary and to his foster father Joseph, the two people on earth he loved the most and who loved him the most, we might say, why would our Lord put them through this sorrow? Even Our Lady, you might say, confronted our Lord with this very question when on the third day she and Joseph found him, finally, in the temple. And Our Lady asked him with a kind of a plaintive question, Son, why hast thou done so to us? Didst thou not know that we... We're seeking thee in sorrow. Our Lady expressed that sorrow. How it must have crucified her as a mother to think that she had lost him, perhaps even that she had somehow failed him. And how it tormented St. Joseph, too, to think that he had failed somehow, that he'd been lost. And now they find that Jesus was all aware of not only what he had done, but the sorrow that he'd caused them, and had been aware and knew fully that they would suffer because of it. And so Our Lady well asked him, how is it that he would do this? And our Lord's, our Lord's answer to her does not seem very consoling. Why hast thou sought me? 
didst thou not know that I must be about my father's business? And people wonder about that. Some of them might even be tempted to think it's unnecessary cruelty to put the Blessed Mother and Joseph through this sorrow. <laughs> but God knows better. It was all part of a divine plan that was necessary. You see, one thing that this shows is the mind of Mary, and to a certain extent also the mind of Joseph too. Because 12 years before, the angel had come to Mary and told her the divine plan that her life would be bound up with the life of the Savior. Mary knew from prophecy that this would be a life of suffering. She freely accepted it. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word, she said. And she meant it. And you know what? The event of the gospel today shows that in a very powerful way. That Mary was able and willing to accept what God wanted her, what she understood, but she was also willing to accept the things that she did not expect and the things she did not understand. And that shows how fully her will was united with the will of God. That she was able to accept all of those things. You and I may be willing to accept the things that God is asking of us when we, let's say, make a special offering of something because we have our own purposes. But it's very difficult for us to accept something that we don't expect and that we don't understand. When God wants us to carry a cross that seems to be, well, pointless, superfluous, meaningless, certainly not something we would choose, and something we don't understand. How does this fit? Why is this happening to me? But you see, the Blessed Mother is so far beyond us in holiness. She was willing to express to her son the fact that, yes, what he had done had caused them great sorrow, and yet she was willing to bow her head as the handmaid of the Lord and accept this. And that's what separates her from you and me and puts her apart as a great saint, that she was willing to accept this in faith and hope and charity. She is willing to accept this from the hand of God because she is full of grace. And the example she's set by this is a wonderful example, if only we don't miss it, and start applying our own feelings to it because we don't think as she thought, because we don't see the point. And if we don't see the point, we don't accept. It wasn't that way with Our Lady, though. She knew there was a point, and she knew God would make it clear to her in his own good time. Perhaps it became clear at the wedding feast of Cana. You notice when the angel came to Mary at the Annunciation, Our Lady's response was a question. How shall this be done? Because I know not man. She had vowed virginity. When this happened here on the finding of the charges in the temple, Our Lady came with a question, Son, why hast thou done so? At the wedding feast of Cana, Our Lady pointed out, almost in a subtle and implicit question, they have no wine, a request, a request was in her mind and heart at that time. And so Our, Our Lady was learning the ways of God in a way that required great sacrifice. It didn't come automatically. It wasn't all previously made known to her. It wasn't anything less than a cross at many times. The flight into Egypt was a cross. This encounter in the temple was a cross. 
Yes, even the wedding feast of Cana was a cross for her because she knew that she would have to part with him in the way of having no more that happy home life that now his public life would begin because she had asked for it. So Our Lady was willing to learn, even as the Gospel says, Our Lord grew in wisdom, age, and grace before God and man. So Our Lady also was willing to learn. But always we find her steadiness, complete devotion to the will of God, and nothing would shake that. Nothing. So there's a very important answer to the question we have, why would our Lord do this? Because it was part of the divine plan. It was necessary for Mary and for you and me today. But the third thing is the family. The Holy Family. How does the Holy Family apply to you and me? How does the Holy Family somehow correspond to your family and mine? I mean, after all, we had a family on the face of the earth consisting of the Son of God himself as a sole child of the Virgin Mother. <laughs> we have a virgin mother who was conceived without original sin. We had a father who was chosen by God to take his place, stand in his place on earth, and a man who was very, very holy and uh, completely, again, devoted to God's will. How does that apply to us who are born in original sin, who are baptized, and have, uh, shall we say, uh, seconded the sin of Adam in our own souls by our own mortal sins many, many times and needed his God's special forgiveness even to remain in the state of grace. And we struggle and we find ourselves immersed in a very godless world. How, how can we relate to the Holy Family? Were they really a family in the genuine sense of the word? And the answer is absolutely they're a family. But they're the Holy Family. Why are they a family? Why are they the Holy Family? Well, their family, in a number of ways, actually, even, even according to their ancestry, Joseph, Mary, even our Lord Jesus Christ through Mary, they're all descended from the bloodline of Abraham. They all descended from Abraham, who had received the promise, which was fulfilled by our Lord, the coming of a Redeemer. And so they actually, ancestrally, all shared that bloodline and they really had that family, that great family, descended from Abraham as their common origin. And um, they also were a family in their bonds between them. <coughs> and the bond was a band of love. Our Blessed Mother really is the mother of the Savior according to his humanity. And he really is her son. And he loves her as a human son loves his human mother with a great love. But he loves her with an even greater love than that as she loves him with a greater love that goes beyond him being her son, she loves him as her God and her Savior as well. And St. Joseph truly loved Mary and loved the child Jesus. This foster father and this true husband of Mary was there by God on the, on the, in that role of protector and guard, and so he fulfilled that role out of love. So we have to see in the love that united them, there really is the love of father. There's a love of fatherhood in Joseph. There is the love of motherhood in Mary, and there's the love of the child, grateful for Mary and Joseph. And he was grateful to them, as only God can be grateful. And uh, truly, there was this bond of family life there. They showed this in their joys together. They showed this in their sufferings together. The Holy Family sees the shepherds leave, 
sees the kings leave, and Joseph is warned that the soldiers of Herod are on their way. He's warned in a dream to take the child and his mother and to flee. And so this little family, this little nuclear family, as, just, as they like to call it today, I suppose, makes its hasty departure from whatever security it had or comforts it might have had and goes into exile and takes what it needs and supports itself and actually becomes a blessing on a foreign land because they come there not to take but to give. And they find refuge there, but they give so much more than they took from being in Egypt. It was actually a model of the time that that uh, Jacob's sons and his, the descendants of his sons were in Egypt. So the Son of God had to be there in Egypt in exile. But the Holy Family's sufferings did not begin there. We see through the massacre of the, the, the in innocents in Bethlehem occasioning the flight into Egypt. We see the necessity then of continuing back into Nazareth because Herod's son was now reigning in Jerusalem. And we see the hardships that come day by day by day with the cross hanging over the head of our Lord every moment of his life and Our Lady knowing that very well. We see them losing St. Joseph to death. And uh, we see then Mary and our Lord Jesus Christ during his private life. We see that parting of the ways, as it were, called by Mary when she asked him to provide a miracle at the wedding feast of Cana to manifest his glory, begin the road to Calvary. We saw all of that in the hardships that they endured together. And this is true of a family. Family does experience the joys of each other's triumphs and successes and uh, each other's comforts and happiness. But the family also suffers together and endures together the hardships and supports each other in those hardships. That was true of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in a very special way. And uh, they are truly a family in that regard. But thirdly, they were bound together by something else that made them a family, a very holy family. And that is, they were in the grace of God. That is to say, you have the source of divine grace in Jesus himself, the Son of God. You have the Blessed Mother Mary, who was never, never guilty of sin, always the enemy of Satan, never his ally by sin, with perfect purity of heart, in the state of sanctifying grace from the first moment of her existence. And you have St. Joseph, a man who was a man of the Old Testament, it is true, but because of his faith and hope and charity and the coming Redeemer, he really was in the state of sanctifying grace. And so you find here in the family, you find a holy family bound together by a divine life that is in their souls. They don't just share the human life of their common origin from Abraham. They don't just share their human love. They have a divine love, which is the love, the love of God and sanctifying grace, a participation in the divine life. Jesus is that divine life, and he has it by nature. It is something that his humanity shares in. Yes, there is sanctifying grace in the soul of Jesus Christ as man, and also with Mary and Joseph. They share that divine life, and in that sense, they also are family. And so we are called to look to them to see what a family should be. You see, we might see in the Holy Family 
the divine family of eternity. We might see the communion of saints in this holy family. It is exactly an, an image of the union of the saints and the angels with Mary as mother and God the Father in heaven and how they are united in that same bond of love that we found in the Holy Family here on earth. That they are the, the archetype, as it were, of the communion of saints and the family of those who are destined to love God and rejoice in him forever. This is the Holy Family that is set out for us. <coughs> and we must strive to follow this wonderful example if we are ever to join the great family of the saints in heaven. So fathers here on earth must strive to give the very best that they can, to give their very best that they can as men, Catholic men, true Catholic gentlemen. Fathers must strive to be the very best husbands they can be for their wives, to give the very best that is in them, not just according to nature, but according to grace, what God has put in them. And fathers must strive to be the greatest fathers they can be for their children and give the children the very best that is in them, not just according to nature, but according to God's grace. And so it is with mothers, too. They must strive to give to their husbands the very best wife that they can possibly be by nature and by grace and to give to their children the very best that they have to give by the gifts that are in them naturally, but also the graces that are in them as well. The children... You have to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and be will, willing to be subject and be grateful as our Lord himself has set that example for them. So they must see that that is their vocation as children in their family and that is how they are called upon to love. And they must learn from their parents that life is a life of service to God as you find in Jesus and Mary and Joseph, especially Jesus, the very Son of God, who came, was sent by the Father for that life of service to redeem us, but also in Mary and Joseph, their lives were their vocations, and their vocations were lives of service, and a life of service is a life of sacrifice, and children must learn that, and they must learn that from their parents, that they have a vocation in life, and that life is dedicated to the service of God, and as a life of service, it is a life of sacrifice. Nothing is more destructive of family life than the attitude of entitlement that I deserve to be happy and I deserve to have whatever I need to be happy and whatever I want to be happy at this moment. I deserve that. And if I don't get it, I'll take it. Nothing is more destructive of that attitude of family life than that attitude of entitlement. I deserve to be happy. Where is that sense of a life of service and vocation to our Lord? Where is there any spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our Blessed Mother of St. Joseph? Where is there any sense of the Holy Family in that attitude? But it's the attitude of the day. And the world sets itself up as the enemy of the Holy Family because it wants to destroy the idea of the love of the family. <clears throat> the communists always did this because they wanted absolute allegiance, didn't want any devotion or any dedication of anyone to anyone but the Communist Party. And so the ties of love within the family were a threat to the communist dominion. And so it is with every totalitarian and despot. They want to destroy. They want to destroy motherhood. And the enemies of the faith, the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ, are attacking the very idea of motherhood as they have been for years in the idea of birth control and abortion. They want to destroy, annihilate 
the idea and the love of motherhood. They want to especially destroy the idea and love of fatherhood, especially because then they can attack the very idea of who God is. Our Lord taught us, pray our Father who art in heaven. We just read that when the Holy Ghost comes to us at baptism, he teaches us the word Father. Address God as your Father because he has adopted you. How the enemies of God want to destroy the very concept of fatherhood because they want to destroy the relationship that we are meant to have with God. And this is what is going on right now before our very eyes. That full frontal attack of hell against the true family and the concept of what it is to be a child in the family and to be a son or a daughter devoted to parents and the parents devoted to their children in fatherhood and motherhood. <clears throat> How far we've come down the road of that battle. Thanks be to God that so far we have not fallen victim to that. We're still fighting that battle. And we will win. God will win that battle. The attack is on the marriage vows. Do your marriage vows have an expiration date? As a matter of fact, yes, they do. And when you made those marriage vows, you made, you set the expiration date for your vows. When you said, until death, do us part. And there is the expiration date of your vows. When one of you expires, the vows that bind you together as husband and wife expire with you. That's the expiration date of your vow. Until then, that vow, until you go to God to answer for the vocation that he gave you and that you accepted, those vows are in force. And you have a solemn obligation now to live that vocation. Again, to really live the vocation is to be not only a husband and a father and a wife and a mother, and consequently a son or a daughter, but to be the very best husband and father, wife and mother, son or daughter that you can be by nature, the gifts that God has given, and by grace. That is what is required of us, to follow in the footsteps of this holy family, to take our places finally with them someday in that great holy family in divine life. May God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.